All right, so let's jump in. I've already gotten a, a series of questions here, and so I'm just going to go with it. And then as the new questions come in, I'll try to take yours first, and um, we'll see how this goes. I, I kind of wrote down some notes because you guys have questions that are all over the place. So we're going to see how this goes. Okay, first question. If you could ask God um, one question, what would you ask him? My immediate response to this question is, I would ask him, and this may be surprising coming from a pastor, I would ask him, is Christianity true? Right, because like, I've kind of like, like, kind of built my whole life on this deal. Like, this is not just like, like my, my profession, but like I've built everything on this, on like the belief that, and I do believe it's true, and, and we'll talk about why in a little bit, but that would be my one question, because it's like everybody's got doubts. And so to be able to just eliminate whatever lingering doubts there are, that would be what I would want, want to know. Okay, um, this one seemed like a simple question, but it caught me off guard. I've been having a hard time finding answers. Um, what do you do with dinosaurs and the Bible? How do, like the fossils that they predate the Bible, you know, how do we make sense of all this? Great question. Uh, I remember the first time somebody asked me this, I was a youth pastor, and a student came up to me, and he goes, so, um, like, I'm a new Christian and everything, and I'm trying to figure out, like, do we believe in dinosaurs? And I was like, yeah, man. Like, it's kind of hard not to believe in dinosaurs. <laughs> you know, like, have you not? You've been to the museums. You've seen their skeletons. No? Okay. Um, yes. So how do we make sense of dinosaurs and the Bible and all that kind of stuff? Well, it really depends on, and you could ask me to clarify this a little bit more if you want. We can get into this. But it depends on how you read um, Genesis and how you understand the age of the earth. And so, um, and again, I can get into the different interpretations of Genesis and how do we make sense of Genesis chapters one and two and the age of the earth. And so one view, just to simplify it, would be, well, the earth is young and, um, you know, they've gotten the dates wrong somehow when the age of the universe and the earth and science is kind of going to catch up eventually, I guess. And, and, um, and so those, those fossils that we see um, are the same animals that we see created in the Genesis account. And so we set, have different animals like behemoths that were created in there. And so we kind of think, okay, well, maybe that's what it was referring to. But the other view would be, um, well, we look at Genesis 1 and 2, and when we uh, are trying to figure out what it's saying, a lot of us are mistakenly thinking that it's giving us a scientific worldview, that it's telling us how the world was created, not who created the world. And so we got to somehow get into the context of a few thousand years ago in a near Middle Eastern uh, um, world and figure out, okay, um, if God is speaking through Moses and he's talking about who created the world, what is he telling us through this account? And I'm not saying it doesn't say anything about how it was created. I'm just saying, does it say what we think it is saying? So we come from this like post-enlightenment, scientific-minded world, and we have these lenses that we put on where we see everything through that, and we have to realize that's not how they were looking at it. And so we can kind of talk about the different theories of how to interpret Genesis and how to make sense of it. But those are roughly very two rough sketches. Is it old? Is it, is it young? And that would kind of determine how you view the whole dinosaur thing. Okay. Um, why isn't there a cross in the auditorium? Well, that's a good question. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there's not. So like if you go outside, there's a lot of crosses on the outside of the building. So if you notice, like there's a giant one that lights up the sky. It's like on a tower. Everybody thinks Doyle's office is over there too. Not true. It's just a 
light. Anyway, um, and sometimes there is, just depending on what we're doing and what we're not doing. There's no like specific theological reason behind it or anything. It's just, you know, convenient, uh, depending on what we're talking about or not. But guess what? We talk about the cross every week, even better. Okay. Um, is it morally okay for a Christian to own a gun for the sole purpose of self-defense, i.e. killing a home intruder? That's a very specific question. That was very specific. Um, is it okay? Wow, we have a lot of questions coming in. Okay, is it okay to own a gun? Uh, yes. There's no reason in the scriptures to not own a gun. Um, it, you know, it's, it's really um, about what you do with it, obviously, right? So I could kill somebody with my car. So then should I not own a car? Well, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I, I think it's about... Um, how responsible you are with it and what you do with it. So um, if there's a home intruder, I guess, I don't know. I haven't thought about that part yet, but be careful, okay? All right. Um, will you go back to 5 p.m. service? Yes, next month, okay? Jeez, relax, people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. We will next month. Okay. Um, let's see here. Golly, this, uh, when's Doyle back? Well, that's rude. When is Doyle back? I don't know, a couple weeks, man. He's on vacation. He's old. He needs a break, you know? Um, okay, here we go. Uh, let me see here. What's your middle name? I mean, I come up with all these theological, okay, I think they're probably going to ask me this and this and this. William. All right, it's William. Middle name is William. And both of my boys also named William. Okay, Um should, must, can, should Christians observe the Sabbath like the Jews did in the Old Testament, or has that changed with the new covenant? Great question. Okay. So, um, yes, we, we should practice the Sabbath. I think it's just a good thing. I think it's a rhythm that we should get into, that we were designed in such a way that we should have rest. Um, so if you look at the Genesis account, you see that the Sabbath came on the seventh day when, when God rested from his creation. And it's not because he was tired, it's because he was trying to show us something about ourselves and about creation. So yes, we should rest and we should have the Sabbath. Um, let me talk about maybe when should we practice it? How should we do it? And is it seen in the same way as maybe Judaism would? So when should we practice it? It was funny, we were just talking with some of my friends, Seventh-day Adventists, about um, why they practice the Sabbath on Saturday and why most um, Protestants and, and Catholics um, do on Sunday. And so they would say, well, look, you look in the scriptures, um, throughout the Old Testament, it was the Sabbath was always on Saturday, so we just keep the Sabbath on Saturday. And that's probably when uh, Jesus would have practiced it, and so that makes sense. And I go, okay, well, I get that. Um, but the reason why a lot of Christians now practice on Sunday is because um, right after Jesus' resurrection, so he dies on Friday, he resurrects on Sunday, we see that Christians very quickly start uh, practicing the Sabbath, not on Saturday, but on Sunday, in remembrance of the resurrection. And so there's a long historical tradition in the church to practice Sabbath on Sunday. All right, so there's the difference. Um, but the difference between what you would see as the law of practicing Sabbath and as being a good idea, I think would summarize the difference between what we see in Judaism and what we see in Christianity. Because um, in Judaism, this is the law. You must practice the Sabbath. Uh, we just got into it. I know I'm really late on this deal. Is the, uh, the, the show, The Chosen. You guys have seen this before? You haven't seen You should see it. It's very interesting. And it's about Jesus. And then it's a non-cheesy kind of like show about Jesus' life. And uh, in this, they talk about practicing the Sabbath, and you can see how serious they are, and it's nothing like how we practice the Sabbath. 
And it's because when Jesus came along, he said, not that I have come to abolish the Sabbath, but I have come, just like all the other laws, to fulfill it. I am your Sabbath rest. And so I'd have to dig into a little bit more about what the purpose of the Sabbath is. It's more than just a, a physical time to, to recoup. Um, it's also about uh, who we are, our identity, working towards our identity, and, and finding our identity instead of what we're doing, instead of creating, instead of working towards and, and, and then putting it in Christ and allowing him to be our identity. So I can elaborate more on that later if you want, but we got a lot of questions. Oh my goodness. Okay. I think everyone in this room has asked a question. Um, why did God have the Israelites kill the Canaanites? Woo! Okay. So there's a book by a guy named Paul Copan, and um, he talks a little bit about this. And I think it's like, is God a moral monster or something like that? And um, he talks about this whole idea of how do we make sense of God commanding Israel to go into the promised land and kill the Canaanites? I mean, that seems really rough, you know, especially when we're talking about like kids and women and could they, and it says to, to slaughter everybody in the land. Could that be what's happening here? And there's a few different responses. And I'll just give you a couple and you can research this more on your own time. Um, one response would be kind of a harsh response, but God made life and he can take life if he wants to. Okay, that's kind of a, oh, yeah, I guess that's a, that's, a, that's a difficult pill to swallow, but if God wants to take life, he can take life. Um, the other response would be, well, we have to understand what's happening in here. And so the Canaanites um, had the opportunity to, to flee the land. If they didn't, then they were going to be under God's curse. And did they really kill everyone? Well, um, it may be hyperbolic. It might be that they're exaggerating a little bit. It's like, man, we just, we just wiped them all out. Well, when we say that, I could be referencing, you know, a football game, and we just, we just killed them. Well, did you really kill them? Like, you killed them and then stepped on their bodies to get a touchdown? Like, that seems a little... No, because the language that we're using is hyperbole. And so that could be what's taking place here. Um, I'm not sure which direction to go, and I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but there's really good answers to that question, so I'd, I'd uh, encourage you to do a little more research on it. Okay. Um, God knew Adam and Eve would sin. Why did he create a world where creations made in his own image would sin? Uh, usually I ask, well, do you have children? Why? Did you not know that they were going to be a disaster? Did you not know that they were going to be sinful? Did you not know that they were going to be rebellious? And you would say, yes, I knew all of those things. And yet you still had kids. Why? Well, because you want to share love with them. You want them to have the opportunity to experience life, even if it doesn't turn out well, even if they make bad choices, you think that it's still worth it to have kids. And I would say simply that God feels the same way, is he believes that even though it's risky and even there, there will be sin and rebellion, and even though they may reject him, it's still worth it to have kids. And so it, let's say that um, I dug a little bit deeper and I said something like, well, what if I knew that like, half of my kids were going to reject me. Would I still have kids? Yeah, I would. I would still have kids. Because if my choice is either I have kids and some reject me and some love me, or I have no kids at all, I would still have kids. And so would you. And it's the same with God. Is he says, you know, I understand it's risky, and it could go bad in a lot of different ways. And yet, I still think that the love that I get to share with my kids is going to be worth it. Okay. Um, let's see here. I'm going to have to go fast. All right. Um, 
when did you, okay, Cody, when did you first really believe that God actually loved you and was for you, acting in your best interest? That's a great question. Um, so, you know, my faith journey is kind of an interesting one because I feel like it's like gone in like a bit of a roller coaster ride in that I was raised as a Christian. And as I uh, went through my teenage years and then into being a young adult, I always knew the scriptures and I always knew the faith, but there came a point, and if you know my story, I had a lot of doubts, a lot of questioning, a lot of I'm not really sure if this is all true or not. And it forced me to go through seminary and try to find answers. And, and I would say that my process is a gradual process. Like some people talk about these miraculous experiences where they just go like, and I've had friends where they didn't believe, all of a sudden God just speaks to them and their life has changed forever. And there is this moment in which, that's probably not my story. Um, my story is, and I kind of equate it to, now that I think about it, my marriage a little bit, is there wasn't a moment in which I went, she's the one. Like I didn't come home from our first date and go, yep, this is it. Now I'm sure she did after our first date, but that's not, <laughs> no. It was a process. It took about two years for me to go, and look, I'm a super skeptical person. I, I will be honest, I went, I can't find a reason not to marry her. Hmm, not romantic, I'm just being honest with you. In my, my kind of my process to becoming a, a, a truly, I think, dedicated Christ follower was, it, it was this process of, can I find a reason not to believe this? And then it's a slow soaking in, just like in my relationship with my wife is, oh, this is real, oh, this is good, oh, this is changing me. And so, you know, my story is, is maybe a little bit different than, than other people's stories. And if Matt were here, I'd let, you know, he could tell his story. Maybe we'll do that next time because this is a bit different. Um, raising children in this world comes with many challenges. How do we guide our children to be accepting of others and all these new sexualities and genders, but also teach them what the Bible says? Oof, I am right there with you. So, I, you know, it, it's interesting is I... Uh, there's this tension between truth and love, right? And we talk about this a little bit, is I want my kids to understand what is true about themselves and the world. And, and I also um, want them to love the people around them despite all of our failures. And so how do we do that? And the, I don't have any like easy answer, but I'll just tell you how it worked for me. My dad spent an enormous amount of time with me. And he let me see kind of everything that there was to see. Not that he pushed me out there and was like, okay, good, no, but he like said, all right, look, here's what reality looks like. And when it was an appropriate age, around probably junior high into high school, especially in high school, we just had a lot of conversations. Hey, do you see what's happening in this person's life? Do you see what these people believe? Do you see? And it was just an ongoing conversation where we were talking. So one of the things um, that we did was I rode motocross and my dad would take me at least once or twice a week out to the trap, two, an hour there and an hour back minimum. Guess what we did during that whole time? We had long talks about lots of things in life. And so it wasn't just like, hey, let's sit down and have the talk. There was no the talk. It was a continual talk for years and years and years. And even still to this day, even um, as an adult, we still have talks like that. We're bouncing ideas off and we're wrestling through. And, and I'm going to talk about it in a minute because one of the hot topics is how do we think about race relations and systemic racism and all those kinds of things. And and him and I have been dialoguing with that for a year and a half now, just going, no, now, what do you think about this? Have you read this? What do you think about just wrestling with? And so it's an ongoing conversation um, in which I have to be firm in the truth. Here's what is true about sexuality, about gender, about love, about marriage. And yet, 
Here's how we also love those people. Here's what Jesus did in those circumstances when people didn't live up to what we think um, God's design is for them. So, all right. Um, what does the Bible say about vaccination? It's funny, I went to the book of COVID and I was like, what does it say in COVID? No, um, <laughs> it doesn't say anything about it. Uh, so people want to ask about like, hey, what, should I take the vaccine? I don't know, I'm not a doctor, don't ask me. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't say anything about it. Um, and so, uh, you know, if medically, if all the best evidence points in one direction, then then fine, take it, go for it. You know, that's not for me to determine if you have, and I don't know your history. I don't know your condition. I don't know any of that kind of stuff. And so should you take the vaccine? Ask your doctor. All right. Um, when communicating with a friend that struggles with suicidal thoughts, what is the best biblical advice to give them if they are interested in receiving help? That is a great question. Um, so whenever I'm talking to somebody who is really depressed or even suicidal, um, one, I just listen, and I think you probably know that, is you just try to hear what's going on, and, and I'm not a doctor, so I can't diagnose, hey, I think what you have is, a, you know, this mental illness, or it's a situation and circumstance that you're dealing with. No, that's not my deal. I may give them resources. Here's some people that you may want to talk to, um, but I also, as a pastor, try to encourage them. Um, one of the visions that I have, and this comes into when we talk about evil and why God allows bad things to happen, is um, what does the end goal look like here? Like, like, what has God promised us? And I think about this moment that one of, one of my favorite philosophers said, and it's stuck in my mind ever since, where he says, you know, one day we're going to stand in front of God, and if we are believers, um, we are going to say in that moment, whatever I've experienced in this life is going to be worth it for this moment right here. I would go and live that life a million times over in order to experience this moment and then live this out into eternity. And so for me, it gives a picture of hope because I'm a person who's dealt with depression, anxiety, and OCD and all that kind of stuff. And so when I'm like really down in the dumps, what, what can I grasp, grasp onto? And that's one of those things that I can hold onto is, okay, you know what? There's a promise that no matter what happens in this life, that there is going to be something at the end of this that I say, this was all worth it. Uh, and so I, I hold on to that because sometimes when you're in those deep, dark moments, that's all you can really hold on to. You can't say like, next week's going to be awesome. They're like, I don't know. I don't, no, no, no. I need something bigger than that. Um, and the other is, I think, is we also can affirm that and, and God is not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. If you continue to lean into them, it may take longer. It may look different, but he will continue to fulfill his promises. Uh, okay, let's keep going. You know, uh, I got another question about that, about, about suicide. Um, what happens to, or what do we believe about Christians who commit suicide? That's a really tough one, because um, from a theological point of view, we did nothing in order to earn our salvation. We believe it's a free gift of God, that there's nothing that we can do, good or bad, in order to either negate the offer of salvation, or we can do in order to earn it. It's just a free gift. And so, if that is true, then there's nothing we can do, including suicide, in order to lose our salvation, right? It's not like, oh man, and this was always the illustration I had when I, could, when I was a kid. It's like, what if we're about to get in a car accident, and the second before I die, I say a bad word? What happens then, Dad? He's like, you're dumb. <laughs> what do you mean, what happens then? Like, do you think that somehow you have to like, make sure that you're, you're, the, the timing of your death you have not sinned in the last five minutes or before you've repented? Like, no, that's not how this works. Um, but on the other side of it is, um, we know that 
murder is wrong, even if it's the murder of yourself, so it is a sin, and it would also make me question, and I want to be really delicate about this, because I know that there's mental illness, and I don't know how that all plays into that, and I also know there's circumstances that push people um, where they feel like they have no other option, and, and so it's very, very complicated, but I just wouldn't want to be in that position to stand before God having done that, I would say. And, and that's up to God, and he's going to decide. And again, like I said, our salvation is not dependent upon what we do, but I also wouldn't want to be in that circumstance. So I don't know if that helps at all, but okay. Um, oh, if God's word is authority, why are you speaking? Because you're not reading it enough, so I have to do it for you, I guess. I don't know. Um, no, I mean, the scripture says that there are certain people who are um, supposed to be able to teach and preach God's word. And you're right, I have no authority, but the scripture does. And if God is using me in order to teach this scripture, that then gives me some kind of something in order to give it to you. I don't know. Why are you here? Go away. Okay. <laughs> kidding, kidding, I think. I don't know. Um, do you believe in the doctrine of original sin? Yes. So original sin is the idea that um, the sin that entered into Adam and Eve um, is not just a sin that is in them, but a sin that is in humanity. And um, we, can, we can see this throughout the scriptures. And in fact, the whole idea of um, Jesus coming, and you see Paul's formulation of this where he says, through one man, sin entered the world, Adam, and through the second man, or the second Adam, um, sin is, is, is taken care of through Jesus. And so we see this idea that sin enters not just into a person, but into all of humanity. It's kind of like a, a disease, if you will, a spiritual disease that has entered into humanity. And, uh, and so, yes, we like to, um, in our modern con conception of people, think that we are born as a blank slate and that it's only through maybe, you know, nature or nurture, depending on that, we kind of start to devolve a little bit as we get older. And I would say that's totally incorrect. And the proof is watch children for an hour and you'll know they were born broken, okay? Like emotionally, just they're a mess. My kids, I had to watch them right before because they were back, back here with me and I'm like, God, I, I'm so happy to be out here with you guys and not them right now, they're a mess. Okay, how do you know God exists? That's a great question. Um, so we could, depending on, on where you wanna go, and I think probably from like a popular conception, when we talk about knowledge, like how do we know certain things, um, we're getting into the area of epistemology. So how do you know what you know? And, um, and that's a really interesting study because depending on where you're at on this, you, you could say, well, you and I, we don't really know anything. We can't prove anything. I can't prove that we're not in the matrix right now. I can't prove that this didn't just pop into existence 30 seconds ago with memories of the past. I can't prove any of those things, right? Um, and so I have to make certain assumptions about the world and about humanity. And, and so I have to make sense of um, the world that I live in. And so how do I make sense of the world that I live in? And so there's, um, there's different types of, and they call them apologetics, is defenses of the faith. And so classical apologetics is, it looks for the existence of God, and then Christian apologetics uh, would probably be, um, would, would build on that, and they would uh, look at the existence of Jesus and his resurrection. And so when I think about the existence of God, for me, it's like a cumulative case, is there's never going to be one piece of evidence that you go, well, that's it, that settles it for me. That, pff, now I know. No, I think of it like a giant puzzle that we're trying to put together, and there's all these pieces, and I have to put them together and figure out, okay, what is the picture that is being painted for me? 
And so when I think about it, I, I would start with, and these are some classic arguments for the existence of God, something like the cosmological argument, fancy way of saying you're looking at the beginning of the universe and trying to determine how did that happen? Was there a beginning? If there was, how did, the, how did something like that take place? And so there's a philosopher who's been working on this, one of my favorites, Dr. William Lane Craig. He gives what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. And in this argument, he argues that, um, uh, let's see if I can remember, it's been a year since I've been in my uh, philosophy classes here. Uh, Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. (laughs) There it is. Okay. And the whole idea is from these, we can deduce, if these are all true, that there has to be a cause that is timeless, that is personal, that is all powerful, that is, and that begins to look like the God of the scriptures, Okay, and then we look at the teleological arguments, the design of the universe. And we can do this on a grand scale where there's all these constants and quantities that were inputted into this universe from the very beginning that are just so finely tuned that uh, some, some scientists have said it's like throwing a dart from here to the edge of the universe and getting a bullseye. Like that's how intricate and fine-tuned these laws are. And not only that, but like Earth. We're in this, what's called the Goldilocks zone, in which we have this perfect distance from the sun, and we have these planets that are able to keep all these uh, asteroids from coming and destroying us, and they're just all these intricate, and then we get into the origin of life, how did that happen, and into evolution, and if, if that's a process, how does that take place, and consciousness, how do we explain that, and then we get into more of the personal stuff, like the meaning and purpose of life, and objective morality, and just a ton of stuff. And so if that's something that you're interested in, we do apologetics here. We have a class. We also have a, in our Rooted Four, and um, we can make recommendations. If you're, if you're into that kind of stuff, I would go with either Tim Keller, The Reasons for God, very fun, cool read, or something a little bit more complicated by William Lane Craig, um, where uh, you can jump in on any of his stuff. Okay. Woo! I'm not going to make it through these. Once you accept Jesus as your Savior, is there anything you can do or not do to go to heaven. So we kind of just talked about that a little bit, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast forward on that one. Um, there is one thing that you can do. There is one unforgivable, unforgivable, unpardonable sin. The scripture talks about it. Everybody, for some reason, has this thing that they thought it was suicide, but no, that's not what it is. It's the rejection of the call of the Holy Spirit. It's when he comes in and he, tries to, and he, and, and he calls you to come to himself, to become a follower of Jesus, and you reject it. That's the only one that can can be forgiven or not forgiven. Um, do you think Bitcoin will hit 20,000 or 50,000 first? Oh, it's looking like 20,000 right now. So that's a sad time. Thanks for that. Some of you guys are into Bitcoin. Anybody into that? Yeah. When the apocalypse happens, you're going to want it. I'm telling you. Joke. I'm kidding. That was not a theological statement. That was a joke. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, how do you explain death to a child? Yeah, so, um, well, so the way that we've talked about it with our kids is um, when we've had some deaths. So my, my grandparents, a couple of them have passed away since my kids have been born, and we brought them to the funeral, and we kind of explained it. And, um, and, and so through those experiences, we've said, hey, here's what this looks like, is... Um, they are not around anymore. They're gone. You, you don't get to talk to them any longer. So just like you remember when like your baby brother, when he wasn't here, but now he is here? Well, now it's kind of like the reverse. Now that they, they were here, now they're not here anymore. And so then the obvious question is, well, what happens to them? 
And so for my grandparents, both of them were strong believers. And I said, well, they went to go be with Jesus. Is now they get to go be with Jesus one day. If we follow Jesus, we're going to go be with them as well. And we all get to be reunited as a family one day. And they go, okay, that sounds great. And, and so it's kind of um, a little bit strange because kids don't understand the, at least that mine didn't, the, the, the grief that goes along with it because they're just kind of naive to this whole thing. And so my, my youngest son would always be like, hey, um, Papa, did you know that your daddy's in heaven? And I'm like, let's not do that right now. Okay, like that's a little bit awkward. But my dad is like, yeah, that's great, isn't it? Can't you wait? One day we're gonna be in heaven with him too. And, and so we try to have a dialogue about that and make that a, a a part of the conversation, obviously, we don't want to be morbid and dwell on it, but this is something that all of us are going to experience, and this is something all of us should be prepared for, and so it's a dialogue that we have, just like when we're talking about all the other big issues with our kids. Okay. Um, why, do Christian, why don't Christians celebrate old traditions holidays from before the resurrection? Um, I, I guess you'd have to clarify what those would be. Um, maybe you're thinking like a Passover or something like that. And I don't necessarily think that there'd be a reason not to celebrate, but we have other things that we celebrate um, and, uh, that we find more important. Okay, uh, what makes Catholics different from Protestants? <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> a lot. Um, okay, so a couple of the main differences would be um, our view of uh, the authority, well, how do I say this? Uh, okay, the balance between faith and works, that would be one of them. And so um, the Protestants would say that it is solely through, okay, so you have these five solas, all right? This is from the Reformation, Martin Luther. Go back and look those up, okay? I don't want to rehash. Martin Luther did a great job explaining what he thought the issues were. I'm going to let him do it, all right? Um, the other would be the authority of the Pope, so um, when we look at when, math, or when Peter makes this claim that Jesus is the Messiah and he says, on this rock, I will build my church, um, we believe as Protestants, what he's saying there is on the rock of the statement that Jesus is the Messiah. So on this bigger than life statement, Jesus is the Messiah, we're building the church on that belief. Um, the Catholic church would say, and we're also building it on Peter and through the succession of popes, um, we will have a, the church, which is the, the Roman Catholic church, Okay. There's also another one that gets thrown in the mix, which is Orthodox, and that's a whole other story as well. So I, I'm sorry I don't have time to go through all of it, um, but maybe next time. Okay, let's see here. Oof. I'm starting to sweat up here. Uh, what translation of the Bible do you use for studying and preaching and why? So uh, typically... I use NIV because that's the one that I'm most used to. Um, in seminary, we used ESV a lot. Um, there's a lot of great trans translations. I would probably recommend one of those. Um, or um, what is it? The NAS, NSA, What are all the, I can't, NASB? Yeah, NSNA, oh, forget it. You get the idea. Just do NIV or ESV or just, just don't do King James because you'll never understand it. Okay. Um, let's see here. Okay. <laughs> I knew this was going to come up. In Revelation, there's all these crazy things that happen. Will they actually happen? Like dragons and creatures with eyes all over and giants? And that's a good question. What's the best and worst thing about being a minister at SCG? <laughs> Same question, only being Doyle's son. <laughs> okay. Again, this is a talk in itself. Uh, what's the best and worst thing about being Doyle's son? Um, the worst thing would be I have uh, acquired his eating habits. 
Um, the best would be the, obviously like the insight that I get from him being like kind of front row into a pastor's life and all the things that goes along with it. Best and worst thing about being a minister at SEG. Well, I will not lie. This last year has been a challenge being a pastor, not just at SEG, uh, but anywhere. But it's also been really good because um, I've got to see how faithful God has been through this whole process. And the fact that we're sitting here right now is a testament to that. So um, we'll, let's see here. Yep. Okay, uh, this one's come in a bunch. Um, okay, so this one, let me get to the couple of the really hot topics, and I know that we've only got five minutes, so I want to make sure I touch these ones. Okay, um, we talk about, or you talk about homosexuality when we do hot seats, but have you heard the argument that the term homosexuality was introduced in newer translations and that the Bible is really referring to pedophilia? Um, and I would also add to this person or pederasty. And I, yes, I'm very familiar with all the arguments. Um, and, um, and when it comes to homosexuality, this is one of those hot topics, which about every, every about 10 or 15 years, the, the, the hot topic changes. And so like right now, it's really about sexuality. Like this is really, and there's some reasons for that culturally and, and some beliefs that we have about our identity and, and freedoms and things like that. But, um, but it, just realize that it changes because 15, 20 years ago, we weren't asking about homosexuality. We were asking about money, and we are asking about greed, and we are asking about tithing, and we are asking about, and, and that, you know, the, the, the priorities seemed to change, and, and last year, or two years ago, we never asked about critical race theory and systemic racism. And so just realize, like, what we think is important, and what we think, and I'm not saying that they're not important, but just realize, like, we are very much influenced by the culture around us and what questions we're asking, which ones we think are so important. And for many, this is an important question. Um, when it comes to homosexuality in the scriptures, and again, we've done an entire talk about this, and I could do, you know, an hour on this alone, but there are a ton of people right now who are coming and saying, well, you know what, you've just, you've misunderstood the scriptures, what, what it really means here is, what you've really, and just from a, like a, maybe a broader perspective, whenever someone comes to me and says that, I go, oh, time out. You might be right, but just so you know, what you're telling me is, for not only the last 2,000 years, but for the last three to 5,000 years, uh, the Judeo-Christian belief in human sexuality has been wrong, and we in conjunction with the sexual revolution in our culture, have figured out that what it was really saying to us. I immediately go, well, that's kind of suspect to me. Is we got it wrong for thousands of years and you guys figured it out from a mistranslation in Greek? Okay, that already makes me pause right there and go, I'm not sure about that. But let's also assume that maybe you're right about those things. Um, the argument is not that there's one verse or two verses that say that this is um, not God's design. It's the whole, it's the whole, um, the entirety of the scripture is pointing towards this specific way to look at sexuality and gender and marriage and from the very beginning in Genesis to the very end. When Christ returns and talks about this, this coming together of Jesus, who is the, the groom, and we're the bride, and there's going to be this uniting of the two, and all of this is because of this design that we see within not only ourselves, but this, this uniqueness that we see in the Trinity. 
And so to come at, with these, you know, and, and this is just for people who are really struggling with where do I land on this? And again, I could go forever about this topic is I would just say, look, um, the scripture is pretty clear. All right. We may want it to be different in this cultural moment, but the reason why it's clear is because God has designed us in such a way that um, there are ways that we are supposed to use our sexuality and we're supposed to use this gift of sex. And if we misuse them, something's going to break. Somebody's going to get hurt. And so he does it not just because he wants to limit our freedoms and our fun. He does it because he said, I design it. I know how all of this is supposed to work. Same reason why, and we focus on homosexuality, but I wanted to actually talk about you know, sex outside of marriage because it's the same concept is God has created this gift, and he says, now here's how you're supposed to use it. You're supposed to use it in this context, and it's supposed to be between a man and a woman because this is how I created them. They are distinct. They are equal in their value, but they are distinct. Two different parts coming together. That's why God made an Adam and an Eve, not an Adam and an Adam, because there are distinct differences that when they come together, they make a whole. And this is kind of the whole idea behind marriage and, and sex inside of marriage is this one flesh union where these two distinct parts are coming together and where they're uniting in their entire lives. Part of that is this physical uniting that takes place, which is also why sex outside of marriage is wrong, no, no matter if it's uh, heterosexual or homosexual, is because it's supposed to be about full life giving. I give my life, I expose myself to all parts of me, emotionally, relationally, financially, and physically, and when we try to separate one of those things, it becomes uh, destructive. And I kind of think of it like this. I used to explain it to the, to the youth is it's sort of like marriage is two different colors of Play-Doh coming together. And in these two halves, they come together and they make just this beautiful picture, right? My kids, just, they just ruined all of our Play-Doh because they always want to put them together. They go, what? So cool. And, it's, and it is supposed to be beautiful like that. But what happens is when you try to bring those apart, again, now we're getting into divorce and, and, and sex outside of marriages. When you try to pull those things apart, man, it's messy. There's parts left behind and there's emotions and there's destruction and there's, and that's kind of the image that I like to think of when I think of the, 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 the oneness of a man and a woman coming together. Okay, there's gotta be a lot there. I feel like this 30 minutes went fast. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, okay. So let me, just, let me just touch upon this issue because I've gotten a lot of questions about it. And I'm sorry. I have dozens of questions here that I'm not going to be able to get to. Let me talk about um, the, the whole race, system, systemic racism, CRT, all that kind of stuff because I've gotten a lot of questions in, on about that. And, um, and I'm going to do it in all of three and a half minutes. Oh, jeez. Maybe I shouldn't do it in three and a half minutes. Maybe I should wait till next time. Autumn, what do you think? Wait till next time? Okay, cool. Oh, is that not what you meant by the thumbs up? Okay. Um, so let, let, let's just be clear on a couple of things. Is, uh, someone asked, is race and ethnicity discussed in the scriptures? Yes. Well, yes and no. Race, there's, there's one race that's discussed in the scriptures. It's called the human race. It says all of us are of the same race. We are all made in God's image, which is what gives us intrinsic value. And so is there little distinct differences, maybe in the, the color of people's skins or their abilities? or their, Yes, there's going to be. Dis, but the thing that makes us united is that we're made in God's image. And that makes us uh, 
that makes us intrinsically valuable. So when we talk about race, I think we need to clarify, there is one race, it is the human race. And all of us are made in God's image. Now, the second part of that would be, well, are there different ethnicities? Yes, I mean, the scripture is full of diversity. It's all over the place. In fact, if you went back and you were looking and you were able to see in real time what people looked like, they were all different types of colors. But the, the thing about their um, physical characteristics is it was not a primary or even a, a much of a consideration when it came to, um, came to who they are. And, and one of my concerns is that we have made this idea of ethnicity a primary identity marker when the scripture says it's a good thing, it's a gift. It's kind of like, man, you have these different qualities about you and that's awesome, but it's not the primary thing. It's not even close to the top as being a primary thing that makes you unique or valuable. And so um, the scripture says that we are supposed to love everybody, our neighbors, whoever looks or does not look like us, that we're not supposed to show favoritism to anyone. And so that's pretty clear. I just want to make sure that we understand that. Because if, if there's any confusion about what the Bible says, it says that racism is wrong. Just full stop. That's it. Okay? Racism is wrong. There's no debate about it. Now, some people say, well, you know, there's been Christians who have been racist, who have tried to, yes, you're right, they have manipulated the scriptures. They, they may have known better at the time. And it's also why Christians are the ones who were, would stand up and fight for their freedom, where they were the ones that said, no, 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 no. We actually have the worldview that says that we're all created in the image of God, and therefore there is no room for racism. There is no room for slavery, that everybody should be free. And so it's how you can have people standing on both sides of the issues. But I would argue that Christians are the only ones that have the ability, that have the resources, as far as a worldview goes, to argue that there should be no racism and it is wrong. And I could get into argument about why that is, but I'm not going to. Now, when we talk about justice and oppression, that's another one of those commands that the scripture gives us, is that Christians, we're supposed to pursue justice that we're supposed to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves, that we are supposed to pursue mercy. It says in Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct opposition, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now, we are supposed to reject racism. We are supposed to embrace justice. We are supposed to fight for the oppressed. All of those things are true. But here's where the rubber meets the road. And I'm not going to give you any answers. So if you're waiting for me to say something where you're like, aha, I'm not going to give it to you because I want you to think for yourself. And so here, here's what I think about issues like this. And I can get into CRT. I have spent countless hours studying critical race theory, critical theory, systemic racism, all of those things. And there's some good resources out there, which I can recommend for you um, if you want. But here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. And I'm out of time and I have like I literally have an hour that I could do on this one too. But when we start talking about these issues, I think that the conversation has become so divided and so political that we're missing what the core issue is here. Well, is critical race theory a methodology? Yes, you're right, it is. And it addresses this idea of systemic racism and it looks for systemic racism and it tries to, and, and again, we can go back to, yes, yes it's, it has Marxist roots and then it went into the, you know, it was developed in the Frankfurt School and then it's been continued to develop and it's got popularizers like Ibram X. Kendi and D'Angelo and all of these people. Right, I, I know all of this. And yet no one can give me a real definition of what we're talking about. Everybody's just screaming all the time. And so here's where my concern is, is when we're looking at issues, are we being thoughtful and wise about 
the issues we're discussing. Because one of the visions that I think that the Christians need to get a hold of these days is in the future, we have to be people who fight for unity, that we are a calming and peaceful presence, and that we bring wisdom into discussions, that we don't put more fuel on the fire. I'm not saying that we can't have opinions and that we can't fight for our beliefs. I 100% agree with that. But we can't be ignorant about it. We, we have to be wise about these things. And so here's what I do whenever I'm trying to discuss and, and think about issues like this. My first thing is I try to understand what is the argument or claim that is being made here? And so I just spent, I spent a year and a half trying to figure out what exactly are we talking about? I ask questions like, what is the problem that we're trying to solve or explain? What is the proposed explanation or solution? What evidence or reasoning are behind it? What are the best arguments for and against? I listen to all kinds of debates. I don't want people to build a straw man and then knock it over. I want to hear the best arguments on both sides. I want to evaluate. Does this have explanatory power? What are the, what are they suggesting that's going to fix this? And is it powerful enough or does it only explain partially what we're talking about? Um, are there simplistic answers or soundbite answers to complex problems? Because that's just rhetoric. So I, I, is there something deeper? What are the underlying assumptions being made? What evidence do they have to support their claim? What are the alternative explanations? What solutions are I proposing will fix it? How will this affect me? Because that's going to reveal my bias. Finally, does it correspond with uh, scripture and reality? And can I make sure that I can buy into and affirm both? I got to ask a lot of questions. So people get mad hey, why haven't you guys talked about X, Y, or Z this last year? Everybody's got something they want to talk about. And I go, well, because I haven't researched it. Unless it's, unless it's explicitly talked about in the scripture, I need to do my due diligence. And you should too. And so when it comes to things like this, here's my concern about this conversation. Is if this, whatever this thing is, and I'm not even sure if we can define it anymore, that's happening within our schools and you know, with CRT and then our work with diversity training and all this. If this is a conflicting worldview, then the scriptures which it can become, and, and we, I could talk about how that is, if this becomes a worldview that is in direct opposition to my worldview, then I'm going to have a problem. Then I'm going to have to get up and I'm going to have to say something. And there do seem to be a lot of elements within whatever this movement, whatever you want to call it, is that there are some things that are conflicting. There's some things that I can affirm, and there's some, but there's a lot of things that are conflicting that I have to go, hold on, that's against what the Scripture says. And I'm not going to like spoon feed you and go like, here's what you should say. No, no. My, my challenge is, is to become believers who understand the Christian worldview so well that when something comes up that is in opposition, we can identify it. Because today it's CRT, tomorrow it's something else. There will always be something that is going to fight for your allegiance that is going to try to give you an alternative narrative to the gospel. And so I want us to be so thoroughly familiar with what the gospel narrative is, that when something pops up and tries to take our kids or our attention away from that, or tell us that that is false, that we're going to be able to identify it and combat it immediately. And so I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm not going to say, here's what you should go and you should believe. I do have strong opinions. I don't know if you can tell or not. I do. But I want you to figure that out because there will be something else down the road. All right, I've already gone over my time. I'm sorry I did not answer all of your questions. Come back tomorrow. We'll do it again, you guys. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do is uh, I am going to do my best at answering some of these questions. We've already gotten in bunch, a bunch of questions, and so some I'm just going to try to go through as quickly as I can. All right, so the first question that I got in um, was, uh, how do I know if I am dating the right person? 
How do I know if I'm dating the right person? Okay, so um, I was a young adults pastor for a, a, quite a long time, and so I got this question a lot. And so here's kind of what I would, would say. A um, couple things. First thing is, if you're a Christian, you, you gotta be dating someone who else is a Christian. Scripture says it, and in practical terms, it only makes sense. Because here's what happens in a marriage, is as you guys continue to progress in your marriage, you're either going to get closer or further away depending upon what you circle your life around. And so if your life is, is all about Christ, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to make your life all about Jesus, and their life is about something else, something is gonna have to give. Because as you continue to pursue Christ and they pursue something else, even if it's a good thing, even if they're like a great parent, if they're pursuing something else, you guys are just going to naturally drift apart or someone is going to have to give up what they're centering their life around. And so it's just good practical advice. And then the scripture also says you, you have to date somebody who is a Christian. And not just like, I'll go to church with you. Because you know how, that, how long that lasts, right? Until you say, I do. And then they don't anymore, Right? <laughs> They got to be somebody who, and it's kind of iron sharpens iron, is you guys got to continue to push each other in your faith, and so you have to be what the scripture calls equally yoked, is that you guys have to be in this thing and really be in it together in your, your pursuit of faith. Here's the other thing I would say, is um, I would find some wise counsel, because you know how they say that love is blind? I think that love makes you blind, is what it does is it makes you like, as you get emotionally closer to this person, you start to not be able to see some things that people around you are able to see. You know, like, have you ever had a friend like that where you just go, why are they dating them? It makes no sense because they're a little too close. You know, they can't see, they're blinded to something. And that's why you have to be surrounded by people who um, have the same faith as you, but also are further ahead in the journey, can be like a mentor or a couple, and they can see things that you don't see. And you got to let them be able to kind of speak into your life and into your relationship. And if they say, hey, I don't think this is a good idea, you have to listen. I have done premarital counseling numerous times in which I sat down with couples and I said, hey, tell me about X, Y, and Z. And I could tell this was a serious issue for them. And at the end of the counseling session, I've said, you guys cannot get married which they're really usually pretty open to and excited about. They're like, so we should cancel all this? I'm like, yeah, you should. This is going to end very, very badly. And so you gotta, you gotta seek wise counsel, hopefully before you, you've started planning the wedding and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then here's the last thing I would say is, uh, and this is easier to do before you get in a relationship, is come up with a list of non-negotiables. A list of things that I will not date someone or marry someone who does not have these certain characteristics. Because here's what happens. If you don't come up with a list of non-negotiables, you'll settle. Especially as you get a little older and everybody else is getting married, or maybe you've had a failed marriage and you want to still get married because you want to have kids or whatever. What's going to happen is, it's like this. If you've ever been at a restaurant and you order something, and I've used this illustration before, and they bring the food out and it's not at all what you had ordered, but you're so hungry that you're like, I'll eat it anyway. Yeah, that's what happens sometimes. You get thirsty, if you know what I'm saying. Ugh. All right. So anyway, you get thirsty, and uh, oh my goodness. You guys have texted in like 1,000 questions. Okay, here we go. We're going to have to, I took way too much time for that one then. Um, okay. Was there a historical Adam and Eve 
And um, there's a guy, he's a philosopher, Dr. William Lane Craig, is coming out with a book on the subject soon. But uh, do you have any evidence on this question or resources to talk about it? Okay, so let's talk about historical Adam and Eve. Um, in the scriptures, in Genesis, it talks about Adam and Eve. You're probably pretty familiar with that, even if you're not a church person. And there are different debates that are taking place, um, both theologically and scientifically, about if there was an Adam and Eve, or were they representative of an entire group of people? Um, does, the, does Genesis require us to believe in Adam and Eve? And, and so let me just give you a lay of the land, and then you can do further research. So from a theological perspective, when we look at Genesis, we, we have to wrestle with a lot of what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. Actually, what they call kind of like a prehistory is Genesis 1 through 12, and there's a lot of stuff in there that we have to wrestle with including like the flood and things like that. And so when we read Genesis 1 and 2, um, some people would say, okay, well, this makes the earth, if we go through kind of like trace back all the lineage of uh, the accounts in Genesis, and the earth is six to 10,000 years old. Those are called young earth creationists. And they believe that the Genesis account requires us to say that the earth is, is that amount of time, and then we kind of have to wrestle with science because it says something very different. Now, there's a whole spectrum of beliefs, and so that would be like on one side. And then on the other side, you could have what, and the, the, the names change, but I think the most recent one is like theistic evolution or, or evolutionary creationism or something, I can't remember, but it's about, we believe what science has to say, and we read Genesis um, kind of more metaphorically. And then there's a ton of places in between where there's like day-age creationists in which they think, okay, well, maybe the, there's epochs of time. Maybe there's a, a time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, maybe. And so, again, there's a ton of different theories that you can kind of land on. And what's interesting is there's a guy named Francis Collins, and you may have seen him recently. He's been on the news a bunch um, because he is one of the leading scientists in the world, and I think he's the head of, like, he was the head of the Human Genome Project years ago. I can't remember what his title is now. Probably one of the most famous scientists in the world. Francis Collins, and he is an evangelical Christian, and so he's written a ton about this, and so he falls on like this side of the spectrum, where he's all about the science, and he thinks that this is what um, is required, and so they, they look at Adam and Eve as kind of a representative of a group of people. Maybe God used the process of evolution, and through these, he, he either created these individuals, Adam and Eve, or the title Adam and Eve just means man and woman, and so it's representative of this entire group, and anyway... And so there's a ton of different things. And so some resources. If you're on this side of the spectrum and you go, you know what? I think the earth is old. I think evolution is true. And by the way, we could talk about even what that means. Because if you break that down, evolution could mean a bunch of different things. We could be talking about the mechanism of evolution, this neo-Darwinian evolution. Um, or we could talk about the single origin. Everything came from this or single origin and kind of evolved from there. Or we could just talk about evolution as things that change over time. So there, you even have to define that. So, uh, William Lane Craig has some great stuff. BioLogos, if you're like on that side of things, they've got, they've got some things. Um, if you just look at the different perspectives on Genesis and evolution, you can find tons of resources. Um, I think another great person, he is from Wheaton College. He wrote on Genesis, and I, I thought in my head, I cannot remember if you give me a second, I will. He wrote on Genesis, and it's on Audible right now for free, okay? All right, good. Woo, I'm gonna have to talk fast already out of breath. Um, let's see. Some of these I'm going to skip because I'm chicken and I'm not going there. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, is it possible that through God's omniscience, 
he puts people who would reject him in every possible circumstance and places, these are like miniature philosophers here, okay. Every possible circumstance and places around the world where they would likely never hear about him anyway. Okay, so what this person is referring to is this uh, belief um, called Molinism. And so there's, <laughs> you guys are just glazing over right now. Look it up later, all right? So you've got like Reformed, Calvinist, you've got um, Ar Arminius, and then you've got Molinism, and that's somewhere in the middle. And if you're interested in how does God's sovereignty and our free will and how does that all play out, look up those. I'm not even going go to go into it because I can already tell you're going to fall asleep. Okay. Will the beard ever come back? I'm assuming you're talking about my beard. Yes. <laughs> always. It will always be back. Um, let's see here. How do you be a good Christian? Follow Jesus. Next question. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, this is interesting. Okay, so this person says, how do I explain to my five-year-old how God got into the sky? All right. <laughs> We've got some things to talk about here. Um, good question, but you have a misconception of who God is. And so God, we, we have this like, uh, and this is kind of like a part of like our, our Western like ethos is we think of God as this old man in the sky sitting on a, a cloud playing the harp, right? That is not anywhere close to what the Bible says. The Bible talks about God as, and I like to think of it this, is God is um, the greatest conceivable being. And so anything that you could think that would make God great, so great making property, so like he's good, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-just, he is all of those things, okay? And it's not like he is here in space and time in physical form. Um, God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere, but he's not anywhere in which I can go and I can touch him, okay? And so we got to kind of get out of, we have this anthropomorphic view of who God is, it meaning like we put our, our conceptions of ourselves and we kind of project them onto God. That's not who God is. Is God is completely and wholly other. And so when we talk about God, we kind of have to have this, um, this view of God is not a person, although he has personhoods, personhood in the Trinity, and I'm not getting into that, but God is wholly other. And so that... Um, oh, you know what? I think there's an author, um, Elisa Childers, and she wrote a couple books on how to teach your kids about apologetics and God. You may want to look those up, and I know William Lane Craig has one too, so you may want to check that out. Okay. Um, if one is such a great and longtime believer, why would God take away not one, but two husbands? Oof. Okay. Now we're getting deep. All right. So let's pull back a little bit, because what we're asking here is, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, especially those who follow him? I had a young couple come up to me last night after I did a Q&A, and they said the same thing. They said, hey, look, here's my deal, is I've been wrestling with, and I can't find a satisfactory answer to why God allows these bad things to happen to me. I said, okay, well, let's take a couple different perspectives on this because this is the most difficult answer or a difficult question to answer from a Christian perspective. But I don't think it's just from a Christian perspective. I think it's from any perspective. Is the problem of evil and suffering is the greatest problem that we have. And so let's, let's start with a little bit of philosophy and then we'll maybe move into something a little bit more personal. And so um, is there something incompatible between the existence of a good and all-powerful God and the existence of evil. Like, is there an incompatibility there? 
Well, no, there doesn't seem to be an incompatibility. Now, you may say it's unlikely, but there's nothing that like intrinsically would make those things incompatible, meaning it, just because evil exists doesn't mean that God can't exist, right? Because God could have some reasons why he allows evil and suffering into the world. You can think of a couple. In Genesis, we see that God allowed us to have free will. And so one of the ways that evil enters into the world is through our own individual choices. So you got to define, well, what is evil? Evil is a perversion of the good. So let's take something that I think has been misused and abused, sex. Sex is a good gift that God has given us. And yet that same good gift can be perverted and used in some ways in which he didn't design. But because of our free will, we can choose to do what we want with it. And so we have things like rape. And so we have the good being perverted into evil. So one answer would be, well, he gave us free will. And love can only exist if we are able to choose or reject a relationship. And so if God desires to have a relationship with us and not just be these robots in which we say, yes, I will follow you, God, but I have the opportunity to say no, then free will has to exist because that's the only way for love to exist. The other thing I would say is, is perspective, is we don't have the perspective that God has. Is, um, I, I think about my three-year-old, and this is kind of a, a simple illustration, but I take him to the doctor and he gets shots when I take him to the doctor. And from his perspective, he goes, Dad, what is your problem, dude? You drove me here. You put me on this table, you invited them in here, and they caused pain in my life. Why would you allow me to, why would you allow this to happen? It's because he lacks the perspective of knowing that this is actually something that is needed, that this is going to result in a greater good. And we see this over and over in the scriptures. If, you know, you think about the story of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery, and through this process, something that was evil, God turned into good. This is what happened on the cross, is the worst day in history turned out to be the best day in history. Now, if you're standing at the foot of the cross and you're watching Jesus crucified, you're thinking, God, how could you allow this to happen? And yet, at that very moment, that's how God's redeeming humanity. And so, I think we lack, we lack perspective. And I'm not just saying perspective like in our life, but perspective over all of humanity. We don't know how things are interwoven and connected, that things that happen today can affect things 100 years from now. We just don't have that kind of perspective, so I think we can't make those kinds of judgments. Another thing I would say is, unfortunately, this is probably the, the best not the best, let me say, this is the most effective way for people to come into a relationship with God, is if God's purpose for creation is not to make us happy, but to make us holy, to bring us into a relationship with him, guess how that's going to happen? It's not usually going to be through wealth and success, because those are the people that are most likely to reject God. The way it's going to happen is usually through brokenness and pain and suffering and so if God's big plan for humanity is not to give us, you know, 80 years of happiness, but to give an eternity of, of a relationship and, and bliss with him, well then, the way he's going to do that is probably through pain and suffering. Now, that, that kind, of, kind of, I guess, hopefully makes sense of, and in the philosophical world, by the way, the guy who's talked about this the most and kind of has defeated the intellectual problem of evil um, is... Uh, Oh, gosh, what's his name? I have him on the tip of my tongue right now. Philosopher, he's Dutch, if that matters. <laughs> Why can't I? Plantiga, Alvin Plantiga. Did somebody say that? Did they know it? No? Pretend like he did. Okay, Alvin Plantiga, he wrote on this. Um, 
Now, so that, that kind of deals with the intellectual, but that doesn't really help with the emotional problem of evil. When you're in suffering, you don't go, I probably just lack perspective right now. Nobody says that. And so some people, it's interesting, it can make people go one way or another, as evil and suffering can either draw people closer to God or push people further away, depending on how we deal with it. And so I don't know, like, this person obviously has experienced a lot of pain, loss of two husbands. I can't even imagine, you know, the loss of a spouse, let alone two. And, and here's where I find comfort. is because by denying God's existence, there, there is no redemption then. There is no grace. There is no afterlife. There is no nothing. It's just I suffer and I die. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that gives me hope. It gives me hope that death is not the end, that I will be reunited with my loved ones. But it also tells me something about God, is God does not just sit idly by and watch me from a distance and go, good luck, that's a mess down there. No, God steps into the mess with us and experiences it. In fact, he takes upon our burdens and he dies on the cross on our behalf. And so I can at least know that it's not because God doesn't care that I experience these things, because he's shown that he cares and that he's willing to step down and experience it with me. And so I can at least take comfort in knowing that God is not indifferent to what's happening in my life, but he very much is involved. All right. Can you text in something that's a little bit less heavy, please? Um, how do I teach my middle schoolers to defend their faith amongst their friends? Great question. I think this is probably true of just, not just middle schoolers, but, but everybody. Um, I think you've got you to know your faith. You know, this has been a long process for me where I, if you know my story, I had seasons, years in which I doubted, and it drove me back to school. I got a master's degree in theology, and I just, I wrestled with this stuff. Because if this is the most important thing in my life, I better become an expert on it. And I'm not saying everybody has to go out there and become an intellectual, a philosopher, or whatever, but you gotta know your stuff, right? You gotta know the scriptures, you gotta know what you believe, you gotta know how to at least defend kind of those basic beliefs. And so I would recommend that you start reading, studying, you get involved around here. That's why we offer classes and rooted groups and all that kind of stuff, is because you, you gotta be prepared for battle. You can't just walk in there and go, okay, good luck. No, 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 like let's, let's use our minds that God gave us. And so I think that's part of it. The other is you gotta be consistent. You gotta be here. You gotta be with community. And especially parents, you gotta be talking with your kids. Is, is my, I, I shared last night that one of, the, uh, one of the greatest things that my parents did for me was we didn't have just one talk about faith or one talk about sex or one talk. It was a constant talk. Is uh, My dad would take me, because I rode motocross, twice a week out to the track. It's an hour there and an hour back. Guess what we did that entire time? We talked, and I couldn't go anywhere, and he was paying, so I definitely wasn't going to go anywhere. And so we just constantly had ongoing conversations. Still to this day, we still are talking about things that we're wrestling with and, and thoughts that we may have and new beliefs and old beliefs and how we're wrestling with those. It's still an ongoing conversation. Okay. Uh, whew, my goodness. All right. I am not going to get through even a quarter of these, so I apologize, but... Um, why would God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Is it literal or metaphorical? How did Satan get into the garden? All right. So why would God do that? Well, uh, I kind of talked about this a little bit, is the reason why God would give us a choice. So it's not about the fruit. I think you guys know that, right? It's about obedience. It's about who's in charge here. Am I in charge or are you in charge? 
Are you going to trust me or are you going to rebel against me? That's what the whole, the whole thing is. No. So some people say, ah, it's metaphorical. If you look at the context and you look at kind of writing and then, you know, it's all metaphor and it's trying to teach us these higher truths. Maybe. Um, I think a lot of, you know, more, the more traditional orthodox view would be Adam and Eve were literal people. And it kind of makes sense because if you go fast forward to the New Testament, Paul talks about um, the, the, the first Adam and how sin entered through him, and then how Christ came as the second Adam, and he redeems us. And so there kind of has to be a literal, if there's a literal Christ, there seems to have to be a literal Adam in this whole scenario. Um, but the whole, the whole idea is, is that God wanted people who would choose to love him. Right? And this is how you want relationships too. Like you don't want a wife that you come home and she's a robot, and they're like, open up the door, hello, thank you for being home today. Do you want to kiss, yes or no? Yes. You know, like, no, no one wants that. You want people who, well, sometimes you do, but not always. <laughs> sometimes in getting in disagreements, you're like, why can't you just chill? Um, but, uh, but that's how love exists, is it has to exist within this, this uh, sphere where you have an opportunity to say no. So I'm going to have to keep going because I'm going to run out of time. Oh, my goodness, everyone is asking about Genesis all of a sudden. What is going on? All right, I'm going to find something else besides Genesis here. Uh, All right, here we go. I knew this one was going to come up. Can you be gay and Christian? We are a Christian family with an adult child who recently came out as gay. How do we deal with this other than loving them unconditionally? Okay, this is a tough one. But, you know, I I said last night, and it's interesting is, um, and I've talked about this before, is the whole... uh, discussion about homosexuality, and I'll talk about what the scriptures say, but I just, uh, I've come to the realization how much of a cultural issue this is, Um, and I'm not saying it's not important to the individuals, because it very much is important to individuals, but just how much of it, it depends upon the cultural moment that we're in, about about the weight that we put on these things, Um, and so um, if you think about it, 15, 20 years ago, this probably would not have been one of the questions. One of the questions probably would have been about money, you know, how much are we supposed to give? What do you guys do with the money? I don't very often get questions about money anymore, which is funny. Now there are things about, and here's the two hot topics. It's about sexuality or gender, and it's about uh, racism. I would have never guessed that those would be the topics that we would be talking about today. And so I just want to point that out because we're so, we're so formed by the culture that is around us. The things that we think are just core issues are oftentimes because they're core issues for the people around us, and so they become core issues for us. Not saying it's not important. I just thought that was interesting. Homosexuality, what do we do? Um, a few years ago, I had a guest speaker here, and one day I will have him back. He created quite a stir around here, which was fun. First day of seminary, I went into class, and we were just saying, hey, here's who we are, here's where we came from, and he said, my name is Beckett. Uh, I have lived 25 years in West Hollywood as a gay man. I recently came to a relationship with Christ, and I'm trying to figure that out. And I went, we should have lunch and talk. I bet you've, I want to hear more about your story. And so I had him here, and I just asked him questions, and he had this dramatic conversion experience, and, and, and so he's been wrestling with, okay, what does this mean as far as my, my faith and my sexuality, and what does the scripture say about all this? And he recently wrote a book, um, I think it's called Change of Affection, and, uh, and so that might be something that you want, might want to read. Um, but here's what he talked about. He said, look, we can talk about what the scriptures say, and, and it's clear, okay, the, the, it is clear what the scriptures say. And I can talk about those reasons if you want me to. But he says, you know, 
people look and they say, well, isn't it going to be hard for you? Like, because you're going to be celibate for the rest of your life and you're not going to engage in these relationships and all this. And he goes, are you kidding me? I have been given the gift of eternal life. I have come into a relationship with my creator. These little inconveniences that I may have, and I know they're bigger than that, but he was downplaying it, are going to be so worth eternal life with my creator. I will make those sacrifices. Are you kidding me? What a trade. And so he gave me a new perspective on it. Now, I'm not saying it's not hard. It is hard. And I'm not saying there aren't a lot of struggles. There are a lot of struggles. And by the way, if that's you or somebody that you know, we love you. You are so welcome here. We want to, we want to walk through this faith journey with you. But here's what I would say to you and to anybody else is we want you to come here, we want you to be here, we want you to be loved here, and we want you to be different because you're here. Not just different in that area, in every area, because we want you to be more like Jesus, just like the rest of us are trying to become more like Jesus. And so yes, continue to love, continue to love, continue to love, and that's what we will do here. If you come here, we will continue to love you. Now, if we want to talk about what the scriptures say, we can talk about this. There's all these debates that are happening, and I've read, I think, everything there is to read about it, and they talk about, okay, there's these clobber passages in Leviticus, and you don't follow all of those passages, so why follow these? And yeah, Romans 1 says this, and blah, 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 blah. Here's what I would say, without having to go into all that. And um, I've done, I think, like an hour talk on this before, is... Right off the bat, before I even do any study, here's what makes me suspicious of these new views, is for the last not only 2,000 years for, since the New Testament was written, but the couple thousand years before that when we had the Old Testament, and pretty much every culture throughout human history had an understanding of sex, sexuality, and gender. And then all of a sudden, in the last like 25 years, during a cultural sexual revolution, we happen to find out that the Bible was misread that entire time. That makes me just right off the bat, and it could be true, but that makes me right off the bat a bit suspicious when I go, wait a minute. So all these heroes of the faith and all of these, they got it wrong, and we today discovered what is right, which happens to coincide with happening around us in culture. That makes me a little suspicious. So we could talk about the scriptures, we can talk about how from Genesis all the way to Revelation, how it talks about this binary where we have man and woman and how they're created as equal and yet different, and they come together as one flesh and it glorifies God. We could talk about how the church is supposed to be a reflection of that, where we have Christ and the church and they come together as bride and groom and how they're different and yet they're made for each other. We could talk about all of those things, but I would just say that I would be very much surprised if we happen to discover something that nobody else discovered in the scriptures just recently. Okay, that's just me. All right. Um, wow, our time is going fast. I apologize. Um, did you see those awkward signs in the men's bathroom? <laughs> I have not, but thank you. <laughs> I, I guess I'll check those out later. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, um, men's ministry, is that what it is? It's for men's ministry? Is that what you guys are trying to promote? I keep getting these texts like, hey, are you signing up for men's ministry stuff? Hey, are you? And then you just sent me a picture of the men's restroom. So I don't know exactly what your promo strategy is there, but sign up for men's ministry, I guess. They have an event coming up. Um, okay, uh, how, can, how can a loving God send people to hell? 
Good question. So there's different views on this. Um, within like the, the umbrella of orthodoxy, I would say you kind of have two views. Is one is like annihilationist view in which they believe that, yes, you'll be cast into hell, but then you'll be annihilated. That's, I'll be honest, that's not traditionally held by a lot of people. Um, the other one is that people are going to continue to live out um, what they want. And what I mean by this is, is they're going to just, it's a hell and heaven are a continuation of what you already desire and how you already live. Meaning, if you want Jesus and you want a relationship with him, that's what you're going to have for, throughout eternity. It's just continuing to know Jesus and get closer to him. But if you reject Jesus, that's what hell is. Hell is just a rejection of Jesus and God and a continuation of that for eternity. And you may think, oh, that just sounds so harsh. That just sounds, I don't know. And, and, and I get that. I understand that intuition. And, and one of the ways that has helped me wrestle with this is C.S. Lewis' book, The Great Divorce. Now, it's not theologically like making claims like this is how things work. It's more of an illustration to talk about human nature and how we make choices and reject God. And it's this whole idea that um, the story is that there's, there's people who are in hell, they don't know it, and they take this magic school bus ride to heaven, and each one of them explains why they don't want to be there and why they want to go back to hell. And so his conclusion is hell, hell's doors are locked from the inside is it's not because they're not allowed into heaven. It's not because they're not allowed to come to Jesus. It's because they don't want him. They want what they want. And that continues to drive them further away from God. Very good book. If you struggle with this issue, which you probably do, read the book. It's an interesting read, and I think it'll, uh, it'll help. Um, okay, many non-Christians are offended by the exclusiveness of Christianity. Can anything be said in response? Well, here's what I would say. Is every truth claim is exclusive? by its very nature. And so you say, well, how can you believe that only these people can go to heaven or that these people go to hell? And I would say, <clears throat> well, the claim that you're making, let's say it's a universalist claim that everybody should go to heaven when they die. Well, that's a claim of truth. And you know what that claim is doing? It's eliminating my truth claim. Because you're claiming one thing and I'm claiming another and they can't both be true. And so somebody's gotta be right or we both could be false. But all truth claims are exclusive. That's how reality works. And so the, the question, I think, is not, um, is Christianity an exclusive truth claim? Or, or why is it? The real question is, which one is correct? Because all of them are exclusive truth claims. Even the ones that say everybody goes to heaven. That is an exclusive truth claim. And so we have to begin doing the hard work of which of these ones is correct. And for me, I've wrestled with this for many years, and you know, this one seems to be pretty clear that this is the correct view of the world. This is the correct view of how we were made, correct view of Jesus, of salvation, of eternity, of everybody who's making a claim about those things. So which claim is right? Everybody's making an exclusive claim. Okay. Um, I keep getting this one in, and I apologize. I am getting so many questions, and I... I uh, Oh, I can't ignore this one. How much should I tithe? I mean, I've got to talk about that, right? <laughs> that one, you didn't think that was funny. Okay. Um, let me get to, you know, I actually will skip that one. Because um, you, you already know so much, like so much money. Um, <clears throat> let me talk about this one, because I've gotten a lot of questions about it, a lot of concerns. And um, it, this seems like the right context to talk about it, is people have been asking me, Cody, what do you 
or the church um, think about from a Christian perspective, CRT, racism, systemic racism, all of those things. And I have, uh, there's a reason why I never talk about these things is because I don't want to talk about something that I am not fully, um, or at least have a good grasp on what's taking place. And so one of the things I've seen people do, and I think this is true in our society, is everybody's reactionary, right? We hear this thing on the news and everybody's got to post something. Everybody's got to say something. Everybody's got to pick a side and everybody's got to yell at the other side. And I think one of the jobs of Christians is we're supposed to be a, a unifying, peaceful, wisdom-filled community. And so that may mean that, and this is going to be crazy, is we are slow to speak and quick to listen, I've heard that somewhere before. Maybe I just made it up. But, and so a lot of people get angry on all sides of whatever the issue is, is why don't you talk about masks more? Why don't you talk about vaccines? Why don't you talk about uh, CRT? Why don't you talk about BLM? Why don't you talk about, why don't you talk about, because I, I don't know. I have to do my research. I got to figure out what we're even talking about here. I can make a, a post about something, but is that really going to do anything? No. No, 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 it's just going to get me in the middle of a firestorm I don't want to be a part of, which I haven't thought through yet. And so let me, let me just touch on this real quick. And again, I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to do an inadequate job um, of, of talking about it, but maybe I'll give you a couple thoughts. So let's just, let's just get on the same page about what the scripture says about race and ethnicity and racism. So the, the scripture actually says there's only one race. It only refers to one race in all the scriptures. It's the human race. And that's important because it says that there is one race, it's the human race, and we were all made in the image of God, is that all of us are equal in our value and our worth. Yes, there's going to be slight variations and differences, but all of us are of one kind. We are of the human race. And because of that, that makes us all intrinsically valuable, whatever we can do or can't do. Now, it does talk about ethnicities, but ethnicities don't play a large part. It has nothing to do with your value or worth. And so, yes, there are different ethnicities that are described throughout the scriptures, and I think that's just a part of God's beautiful diversity that he's created in the world, but that has nothing to do with your value or worth. Yes, you have, may have a different skin color than I do. You may have a different eye color than I do, but that doesn't change the fact that you and I, we are one and the same, that we are a part of the human race. Now, there could be cultural differences for sure, but here's what the scripture is very clear on. It says this in Ephesians um, or so, let me give you Galatians 3.28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it kind of eliminates any kind of hierarchy or anything, distinctions that we may want to make based on ethnicity or, or origin, uh, uh, family origin, or anything like that. It kind of puts us all on the same playing field as our identity is found in Christ. And it also says that God does not show partiality or favoritism. He treats us all as equals, and so therefore we should treat everyone as equals. That's why racism is wrong according to the scriptures. And by the way, you may say, well, it talks about, and we could talk about what it means by slavery in here, and it's more indentured servants and all that. You know, we could talk about all that kind of stuff. And there were Christians who affirmed, and I would say you're right, and they manipulated it for their own benefit. The Christian view, and this is why Christians fought for freedom for people, is that all of us are equal and all of us should be free. No one should be a slave, okay? So we just gotta, and there, there should be no distinction as far as any kind of value statements go between any kind of ethnicities, okay? So we just gotta get on the same page on that first. Now, here's the second part of it, is people um, have been talking a lot about social justice. 
And how do we as Christians, because we're, we as Christians are supposed to fight for the oppressed, that we're supposed to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct opposition, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And so we're supposed to be people who fight for, uh, for those who are oppressed, for, for those who are experiencing injustice. And I think we all can agree on that, and that's why we're so involved with so many projects around the world where we see injustice and oppression. We want to step in and, into that void and, and help them. But here's the question, and I'm not going to give you like simple answers. I'm going to make you think through this. But the first thing that we have to do is we have to diagnose the injustice and oppression. And that's where the rubber hits the road. Because it says in here that we're supposed to seek true justice. And there's a lot of false justice as well. There's people who are trying to get us sucked into whatever their plan is, whatever they want to manipulate, whatever they want to use us for, and they use the terminology of justice, injustice, oppression, etc. And so it makes it very difficult because we have to then figure out, well, what is true and what is false justice? Because false justice is only going to end up hurting people. We want to be people who pursue true justice. And so... Um, the debate has gotten quite interesting, and I've been trying to kind of figure out what exactly is everybody arguing about, and what are they talking about, and, and, uh, and this, this idea of CRT and systemic racism keeps coming up, and so I'll, I'll be honest, I was, watching, um, I was watching a news channel, and these two people were debating CRT, and they, for 15 minutes, could not, for the life of them, decide what it was. It was crazy, because one side would say, well, here's what it is, and he would describe an ideology, and then the other side would say, no, 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 that's not what it is. It's an ac academic exercise. It's a method. And so they couldn't see eye to eye. And then even the people they named, well, they're not really, they're not real, they're not. And I just went, oh, okay. So we don't even know what we're talking about here. Everybody's just yelling and assuming that the other side, no, this is a mess. And so I read an article um, on a website called Mere Orthodoxy, and it helped me understand and maybe kind of come up with a, a, a way to look at this complex issue. And they say, you know, you can look at this critical race theory and all this discussion under, the or under these three categories, as a method, as a meta-narrative, and as a mood. And so he broke it down, and he said, so let's think of it as a, uh, as a method. Is you have this thing called critical race theory, which falls under the umbrella of critical theory, and I'm not going to get into the history, but yes, it has its roots in Marxism and eventually in the Frankfurt School, and then we seem to have popularizers today, kind of like Ibram X. Kendi and uh, Robin D'Angelo and people like that. And so you have this method, and, and it's, it's almost impossible to get anybody to agree on even what the method of it is, but it seems to be looking for racial disparities and looking at systemic racism throughout initially the legal system, but now it looks throughout all culture. And it's a branch of critical theory, and critical theory kind of uh, has this play out in different, different places and, and different arenas. I don't think most people are really thinking too much about that. I think what concerns people is when this methodology turns into, and so this way of trying to look at the, the systems in our, our society, turns into a meta-narrative or a worldview. So, for example, you have Marxism. Marxism was this economic and, and social philosophy but then it turned into an ideology, became a worldview. And that's what I think people are wrestling with. And, and I could be totally off. And so just, you know, this is just what I'm trying to gauge from this whole thing. And so what the issue is, is people have decided, well, you know what? I don't want in my job or in my school or whatever, I don't want this meta-narrative, this worldview to be taught to my kids or to make me affirm it or, or, or whatever. 
is because there seems to be some things that are in direct opposition to what I believe as a Christian. Outside of whatever you believe about racism in America and all that kind of stuff, is, is as a Christian, I can't buy into these things. And so um, there, there seems to be this, this new worldview that we're being asked to, to buy into. Now, here's what I would tell you. Is last night I, I told them this. I said, I'm not going to spell out all this for you because here's the truth. And in five years, it will be something different. There's always going to be something that is fighting for your attention and for your allegiance that wants you to buy into this narrative of how the world works. And yes, they seem to be recycled over time, and it will be something different. It will be materialism and greed is good, like the 80s, or it can be this you know, CRT like it is today. It will be something different tomorrow. You have to learn what you believe and what the Scripture says and the narrative that it tells us about ourselves and about the world so that you can identify falsehoods. And so I've spent tons and tons of time evaluating CRT, trying to figure out what it means. And the approach that I use is the same approach that I use to try to evaluate anything else. And I think it's something that all of us should be able to do. Is one, I try to figure out, okay, what exactly are they arguing for? Like, what is the problem or what is the claim that they're making? And I don't want to make a straw man. I don't want to, like a bumper sticker answer. I want you to really know what is it that's being argued for here. So I'll ask questions like, um, What's the problem they're trying to solve or explain? What's their proposed ex explanation or solution? What's their evidence for it? What are the best arguments for and against? I watch tons of debates because I want to hear people really have to hash this out. And then I begin to evaluate it. Okay, are what they're saying, does it have explanatory power? Meaning it explains all of these issues. Or does it just explain this one thing? Does it seem to have the power to be able to solve the problem that it's, it's trying to solve? What are the underlying assumptions that are being made? What is the evidence that supports their claim? What are the alternative explanations? What are, I just go through, and then eventually I get to, now, does this correspond with reality and with the scriptures? Because if it doesn't, then I've got an issue here. And so this is what I think people need to be doing because labels are going to change, ideals are going to, ideologies are going to change as we have to be people who understand what we believe. And so uh, I laid it out the other day is, is some of the beliefs that are being advocated right now are a new ideology. Some people call it postmodernism, some people call it wokeism, some people call it whatever. But it does give this, and, and this is kind of how it's been boiled down, is it does give us this this worldview that is contrary to the scripture. And so it gives us an original sin. The original sin is oppression, abuse of power, ignorance and bigotry. And humanity can be divided into two groups. And I'm not saying this is true of whatever CRT, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm just telling you what I observe in culture. Humanity can be divided into two groups, oppressor and oppressed. And I would say, well, no. Original sin is this idea that we've rebelled against God. Not that we have some kind of bigotry or ignorance. Those are just symptoms of what we actually have. Our original sin is our rebellion from God, and humanity can't be divided into groups of oppressed and oppression, although it can be divided into two groups, which is saved and unsaved. Not oppressed and an oppressor. Salvation, through this new view, comes through activism and protest and resistance, and I would say, no, that's not where salvation lies. Salvation lies in Jesus Christ. In a relationship with him, through his death on the cross, he can come and he can forgive us of our sins and transform us. Humanity, and the, excuse me, and the goal is a utopian society of equity, diversity, and justice. Wrong. That is not the goal. The goal is to see a new heaven and a new earth and spend eternity with God. And so I'm not saying that there are not true elements in here. 
I'm not saying that there aren't things that we can learn. What, what I am saying is when this turns into an ideology, a worldview, it is contrary to the scriptures. And so it is something today, it'll be something tomorrow. And so my encouragement is learn your faith, especially if you have kids, you've got to learn this stuff so that when these false justice and these false narratives come, we can be people who can identify them and go, see, that doesn't work because I know what the scripture says, and this is in direct opposition to it. All right, I'm way out of time, so let me pray for us and we'll get moving. Lord God, thank you for this morning and uh, just for this um, opportunity for us to come and ask really difficult questions, uh, questions that um, for some of us are really personal and which we're struggling with some doubts or some fears, um, and so for some of us, just for some people that we care about in our life in which we would like to go and present some answers. And so, Lord God, uh, my prayer is that we would be people who um, not only bring great questions, but we are people who can bring great answers, not only into our lives, but into the lives around us. And so, Lord God, we just thank you for uh, being able to uh, give us this opportunity. And I just pray that um, you would continue to watch over us, to keep us from uh, false justices and false narratives so that we can continue to follow you. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, will you guys stand with me? Woo! Hopefully I didn't say anything that's going to get me fired. All right, you guys, have a great week. Have fun out there. God bless. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. in his blood. Yeah.